Yo, this World Podcast, dopest dope you're ever going to smoke, episode 23. Today, we're in the house with one of my greatest, most awesome friends that I have ever come across on this beautiful, beautiful planet, the one and only Miss Jenny Milton, aka Adrenaline Jen. How are we going, Jenny? What's going on? How's life in Montana? Well, well, it is so great to talk to you. You know, I'm here in Montana and it's so great to hear an Aussie accent and be able to talk at normal speed and catch up with my good buddy, Will Stokes. Thanks for having me on your podcast today. Fantastic. And Jenny, um, you're originally from Canberra. Um, you grew up skiing in Threadbow. Your brother is the very infamous multiple uh Olympic medalist, Mr. Michael Milton, who also has the world speed skiing record for one leg. Can you give us a little bit of background about what it was like growing up in Canberra and um, how you kind of got into skiing and freestyle skiing? Yeah, sure, sure will. That's there's some great memories back there. So, uh, yeah, I grew up in a ski shop from about the age of like one, my parents um, would take me to work every day. They had a had a sports store in Canberra, and um, back then it was called Slalom Ski and Seawear, <laughs> right? And in the wintertime they would sell skis, and in the summertime they would have a different, you know, variety of sports um, that were popular at the time. Skateboards, they were one of the first skateboard stores ever, um, in Australia and definitely Canberra. And, uh, they had tennis wear and they had windsurfers. And so I felt like the luckiest kid ever to have my parents having this sports store and being able to try all these new amazing sports that were coming in and out of fashion. And, uh, we used to be able to go skiing for, in our school holidays back then. And that was our favorite holiday of the year to go down as a family. Um, we'd get a few other week in, week, weekends in here and there, but the week that we'd get to go down was amazing. And my brother and I'd get to ski and most of the time at Threadbow. And I, I remember doing it every year from as long as I can remember back. And, uh, yeah, my brother and I just loved it. He loved racing and I got into freestyle. I got into freestyle because I also loved to um, skate. We had an ice skating rink in Canberra, so I was a figure skater. And for, again, as long as I can remember, I would, I would get my mum and dad out of bed early. We'd head down to the ice skating rink and I would learn to use my edges. I would learn to jump and spin as fast as I could and do axles. And so it was really fun to try and do that with little ballet skis on. And so a ski ballet was a thing back then. Now I'm sounding like a geriatric Haywell. <laughs> so so you would have been one of the last generations that actually got to do acro or AKA ski ballet. Um, I think yeah. one of your coaches on the Threadboot Threadbow slash freestyle, um, freestyle team was uh, Nolan Aota. Is that correct? You know, I might even be for. I might even be before that. And um, you know, we we didn't actually do a lot of training. I looked up to Randy Wyman. He was the man. He was he was fantastic. And then I actually got to have a a holiday at uh, Mount Buller, and um, John Faulkner was teaching ski ballet. You know who John Faulkner is? John Faulkner yeah. is one of my father's oldest friends 
And in 1976, my father moved to Verbier, Switzerland with John Faulkner, who was at that, the 1975 Australian freestyle skiing champion. So I've known John Faulkner since I was probably about eight years old. I know him very, very well. I know his ex-wife, Darcy. Um, and I kind of, that the, one of the first times that I ever went to Verbier when I was about nine years old, um, my dad took me up to Clombarn. We went for a walk up there. And um, I got introduced to um, Bohemian ski culture. And yes, I definitely know who John Faulkner is. <laughs> yeah, you know, the best memory I've got of John is, is, of course, in a James Bond movie as one of those skiers cruising down, <clears throat> chasing him down the mountain. In, he, I mean, what a superstar. <laughs> he, was in, he was in three movies. He was in Her Majesty's Secret Service. For yep. all eyes only, for your eyes only, I think it was, and um, he was also the stunt coordinator in the late nineties on the Golden Eye uh, bridge uh, dam jumping scene, which is in the Valley de Bagne at the top of the valley in Verbier, and that is the highest dam on planet Earth. That. <laughs> That's amazing. I I just remembered the James Bond. I didn't know about the last one, which is super super impressive. So I'm I'm just lucky that I got to have a little bit of injection of his knowledge, and and I loved and absorbed every second of it. And uh, and that's sort of what got me into the freestyle skiing, a combination of the figure skating that I was doing, and then you know trying to to learn from from some of um you know, the best freestyle ballet skiers back then. And what was it like um, skiing at Threadbow in the 80s? Like um, what was it, you know, that skiing back then was a, was a lot more glamorous, it seems, especially at Threadbow. It seemed like there was a bump in nightlife, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of rock and roll kind of, you know, bohemian ski culture down <laughs> under. Uh, Will, you would have freaking loved it. <laughs> it was so so fun and I was so young and I was having the best time of my life because yeah the the skiing was amazing and I don't know it was probably because I was shorter back then I was pretty you know young in the 80s that's my you know I was the at the age of 14 I was ski instructing in Threadbow so you know what's that that's 85 onwards um was when I was hanging around there quite a lot more than just the family holidays and uh back then maybe I was shorter as I just mentioned, um, but the snow, it seemed so deep back then. I remember powder days. I remember overhead days. And and that brings me into, you know, the change of in climate for sure. Um, but the nightlife was super fun. We had uh, an injection of all these Austrian ski instructors who would come over every year and they loved putting on a show in the Keller Bar and doing these dances and they would put on a comedy show and they would do body painting and costumes. It was it was a really, really good time. So, so tell me. Um, eventually, you uh, you ended up uh, skiing competitively for a little while, um, and then you how how did your transition go from being a ski instructor to taking over your family business in uh, in Canberra? Yeah, so how that sort of worked was I told you I loved the figure skating, right? But then rollerblades came in. I still remember the first trade show that I went to and saw a pair of rollerblades, right? Call me nerdy, call me what you want. I'm proud <laughs> to be a rollerblader, okay? Fruit booter, whatever you want to call me. It's fun. And you oh, know what? That's why, I've, that's why I've got super strong legs, 
because of all the rollerblading and the skating that I've done. And I still do. I still love it to this day. You'll see my brother rollerblading around Sydney on one leg. He loves to do it as well. Um, but rollerblading actually catapulted my sort of career. I was working at a rollerblade store in Brisbane on the Gold and on the Gold Coast. It was called uh, it was called Skate Biz. There was Snow Biz, which had all the skiing, and then Skate Biz, which had the rollerblading. And I remember, uh, that. I remember those shops. You remember those, right? Yeah, I used to, when I was sponsored by that. head by Bert Levisender, he used to send my gear there. And the guy yeah, that ran the shop it. was a, he was a, he, the guy that ran the shop was a bit of a dick, and um, I used to get mad because I used to get like packages of like five different sets of next year's equipment because I was, you know, on that free ski tip, and he was like the yeah. old 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 grumpy dude kind of rolling his eyes, going, "Oh, well, what is this free skiing?" Blah 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 blah. So you know that <laughs> was an interesting time in the world. And so, yeah, how long cool did you how long did you live in Brisbane for? I lived in Brisbane for a while when I was studying. So, you know, after I left school and I decided, you know, I needed a real career, I was in Brisbane studying. I went to the Advertising Academy um, there and studied marketing, graphic design and advertising. And so um, what during that time I was working in the local ski shop and rollerblade shop just to earn some money while I was studying. And that was that was just awesome. I used to rollerblade work every day. I used to rollerblade to classes. I was rollerblading everywhere. And what happened was one day a, a lady called me. She said, "Hey, you served me and my my kids in the store today. You were amazing. What an incredible salesperson! You were so passionate about the sport. I live in Hong Kong, and I would love to introduce." the Asian market in Hong Kong rollerblading because it hadn't really been introduced there yet. This is way back in the early days of rollerblading. And so she invited me to Hong Kong and I got to travel over there and I lived there for three months introducing um, rollerblading. I trained a team. We did shows in shopping centers. I would go and meet, uh, you know, Chinese businessmen and try to convince them to put rollerblades in their store. But that was difficult because they didn't like dealing with with, you know, females, um, and especially I was young back then, very, very young, but it was, it was a good time. And it introduced me to international business. It, it introduced me to wholesale and international sales. Um, so I wasn't just a retailer anymore. I was starting to, to learn the wholesale side of the business as well. And so how long did you, um, did you, were you working in the rollerblade industry for, uh, two or three years, or was that like a bit of a longer term project? It actually turned into a longer term project because my parents back home in Canberra <laughs> decided that rollerblades were going to be big. And so they decided to open a rollerblade store. And of course, I came back to Canberra and to run Canberra Blade Centre, it was called. And we became the biggest rollerblade store in Australia. We were renting out rollerblades. I was selling rollerblades. I had my rollerblades on at work every day, I was super fit and strong and, and having a great time until I decided that, um, well, my parents said to me, Jen, snowboards are becoming really big and the snowboarders don't like the skiers. We're having problems with customers clashing in the store. We need to move the snowboards out of the ski store. And so we decided to combine the, the rollerblade store and the snowboards, also a weird mix, but <laughs> that's another story. And, and we created <laughs> a bigger store. We knocked down the wall and created a, a much bigger store. And I decided to call it Adrenaline Sports. Hence how I became Adrenaline Gen or Adrenogen, as they call me now. Um, 
you've you you you're one of the probably the most boisterous, most um best vibes people I've ever come across. You're always happy. You always wake up um stoked on life. Um what is it about you that that kind of gives you that passion to want to go out into the world and kind of create your own buzz and your own awesome energy for the rest of the people around to kind of, you know, vibe off? Good question, Will. You know, if I could sell passion, if I knew the answer to to, to be able to give that to everybody, because it's such an amazing gift that I'm so grateful for. Um, how did I get that? I think, um, you know, my parents being entrepreneurs and always teaching me you had to do everything yourself and um, and being, you know, that happy person in the store, even if you're being a little bit, you know, sad on the inside, when a customer came in the store, you had to put on a brave face. That's called old fashioned service. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a rare thing these days, but I'm still gifted with practicing it so much as when I was younger that I, I still know how to do that. Um, today, I also believe in, um, you know, eating really well, right. Um, my life is my marketing and I, I, I'm, training every day, being fit and strong for doing my sports. I'm eating, um, you know, really healthy, organic food, nothing processed. I don't do sugars. <clears throat> I don't do coffee. And I think maybe not doing coffee because I don't know too many other people that don't do coffee except for my husband and my brother. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, we just wake up with energy, uh, not needing that cup of coffee to to get the, the, the wheels turning. I wake up excited because there's going to be something fun I get to do today and and I'm alive and I think that's the, the the one ingredient that I have that I hope nobody has to go through and that's a you know a near-death experience where you think your life's over and so um after going through that you are so grateful every day just to be alive and uh and I think that really does give you that extra love for life every day and getting you outside and enjoying our environment because it's changing every day. Um, yeah, that's my best answer for you, Will. <laughs> and then so you ended up running your parents' shop for quite a few years. Um, how did that come about and um, what were some of the life lessons that you learned in that process? Some of the life lessons that I learned um, by pretty much, I called it my own business. My parents were funding it in the background, but I had full control of all of the, the marketing, the advertising, the products. I was dealing with all the reps and deciding how many of this and how many of that that I needed. Um, so I was, I was running that business. I wanted to it to be the biggest and the best business that it could be. And I ended up building a bit of a monster. I ended up having 10 full-time staff. I ended up opening a separate uh, skateboard store um, called Four Wheel Circus because the skateboarders and the rollerbladers didn't get along until here's the secret to get skateboarders and rollerbladers to get along, Will. You have, yep. to, you have to put in a Red Bull machine in the rollerblade store and so the skateboard store two doors down, they have to walk into the rollerblade store to get their Red Bull and all of a sudden everybody's friends. And and I ended up being able to put everything in the one store um, by making sure that, you know, there was always something fun going on and pros coming in the store in all of the different sports that I did at Adrenaline Sports. I did that for um, over a decade. 
over a decade before before I decided to to call it quits and to go down a different path in life. And can you give us a little bit of timeline about when when that was happening and when it wasn't happening? Yeah, so um, I was about nineteen, like let's just say twenty. So we're we're talking, you know, early nineties. We're talking in the nineties until you know, early 2000. I remember, I remember, you know, the 2000s where are our computers going to shut down um, or anything like that. So yeah, yeah, we're talking, we're talking in um, um, about 2002 was when I sold it. Oh, fantastic. And then um, can you tell us about some of the trials and tribulations that you've had to come through um, over your life? I think um, there was a couple of um, tragic incidents that happened to your brother um, and can you give us a little bit of context of who he ended up becoming and what kind of person he was as a as a as a youngster and what kind of life lessons that basically taught you to become this amazing person that you now are? Well, I think the answer to your first questions really needs to be answered by my brother. So I'll give you his email, Will, and you can have him on the podcast to I'd answer love to those do that. questions. But did something how... did something did happen though? And then and then what ha- what transpired after that, after the accident? You, you know, my brother, my brother, it wasn't an accident. My brother had cancer when he was nine and, and okay. he he lost his, his leg to cancer. And that was a devastating time for the family. Um, at the age of 30, um, he also got cancer again and esophageal cancer. And so once again, you know, um, had to fight fight for his life to get through that and um he's he's the biggest inspiration to me um both as a as a person and an athlete and you know I'm lucky to call call him my brother I don't get to go, don't get to spend much time with him these days because he has he has Harry Potter stores in Sydney and Canberra and also um you know two amazing t- children and uh and a great wife and and those guys you know are, are full on into into their their world so um yeah but he you know he's inspired me to do a lot of things and he's shown what's possible and he's shown me how to you know overcome fears and build confidence and I think also to be a MacGyver when we were growing up together, one of the coolest things was my brother would want to do all these sports as well on one leg. And so as, as brothers and sisters, we would figure out, you know, how could we adapt his, his crutches to be able to uh, have a hockey stick so he could play rollerblade hockey? How could we uh, build him an artificial leg so he could go windsurfing? How could he, you know, do anything that he wanted to do and the only sport that he ended up not being able to do was um was hurdles <laughs> and ballroom <laughs> dancing although he was invited on uh, um you know dancing with the stars and he he actually achieved ballroom dancing it was super super clever you'll have to have to google that one to check it out he's you know flipping his hat around on his crutches and yeah again very inspirational so he can do anything and i think that is a lesson that you know as his sis i also learned and believed that i could do anything too um so you you um you kind of had like a a life moment where you were achieving some of your entrepreneurial goals um but i think that it took you away from the sports that you loved and you know the the time that you cherished in the outdoors can you tell us about what motivated you to pack up and sell 
your shops and then make the homage to Valdez, Alaska. Yeah, well, yeah, we must be good friends. He's asking me to get a little vulnerable now, and uh, I'll I'll entertain you a little bit with with that. And and the thing is that I followed in my parents' footsteps, and I did a really good job of it. But all of a sudden, I realized that I was just trying to make them proud of me and and following their dream, not necessarily mine. So. Uh, so really what happened was I remember the exact moment I was standing there with a bunch of my staff who were, you know, young males, skateboarders and snowboarders and, you know, skiers. And they, are. Uh, we were all, there were no customers in the store and we were standing around watching on the big screen, this, uh, the TB movies. I can't remember which, which one, but you'd remember those. Hey, Will, TB one, two, three, four. And they all had these Alaska scenes in them that were just spectacular with big mountains like this one here. And we were watching it together and everyone's just going, wow, that is just incredible. You know, can you imagine doing that? They said, and I said, I'm going to do that one day. <laughs> they said, yeah, right, Jen. Yeah, right. And that was all it took was a challenge to do something that I said I was going to do and something that I dreamed that I wanted to do, but I had no idea of the skills I would need to actually do it. But the chance came when I went to a trade show uh, in Vegas, the SIA trade show, and uh, there were a bunch of Aussies going heli skiing after that in Valdez, Alaska, and I managed to jump in with them, and I managed to have my dream come true for my 30th birthday and get out of a helicopter with my snowboard and freaking freak out to the max because all of a sudden now I'm the one that was in that movie and I was doing exactly what I had told those guys I was going to do. And that, that moment of dropping in on my snowboard on a big mountain with my heart pumping and, oh, my God, it's so hard to even – convey the feeling of that although you probably know this one too will it's incredible and then when you drop in and you just do it and I remember actually my snowboard was too small back then I didn't know you had to have a big long powder board and so I went over the handlebars and I flipped over and you know what I landed back on my board and kept going felt like a freaking superstar and I got to the bottom and the heli guide his name's Jerry and he's still, he's a good friend of mine to this day. And he still recalls this moment of me just bursting into tears and giving him a hug because it was the most emotional run and feeling of my whole life. It was in incredible. Um, that's a pretty amazing story, Jenny. And I, I think that you are a um a shining light in 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 a dark, dark, cold world of just having such amazing energy. Um after a period of time, you started spending more time in Alaska. Um, you actually bought a motorhome and then ended up moving there for a few months. Can you tell us about, <laughs> um, have you always been like a bit of a tomboy and a little bit of a, a go-getter? And 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 do you, um, do you have a reactive personality when people tell you you can't do something, you go, fuck you, I'm going to do it and do it 10 times harder than you would expect <laughs> me to do it? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that last one's definitely... 
definitely true. I love a challenge, very competitive. And my brother and I used to challenge each other, became a game of who was going to win. I remember when he had his first baby, he said, I'm the winner. You're not going to win this one. <laughs> and and so that that's just been part of the game that we play and, and part of part of my attitude. But it's a really good follow-on question, Will. Um, you are good at this. Uh, because what happened was that that trip to Alaska totally changed my life. I went back to Canberra and I went back to the store and I came down from my high and all of a sudden the reality hit me that I wasn't doing what I wanted in life. I wanted to be doing what they were doing up in Alaska. I wanted to be like those heli guides. I wanted to be like these badass girls that I'd met that were so badass riding snow machines and hiking up big mountains. They weren't even using helicopters. I'm like, how do you do that? And so it really changed my life into um, a place of wanting to learn and wanting to learn more and, 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 and follow a different path. I, I figured out pretty quick, um, you know, after a bit of depression that the, the path of retail was something that I'd, I'd achieved what I needed to, and it was time to move on. And I managed to sell the store to an amazing guy, um, and his wife that was super stoked to take it over and they kept running it for another 10 years. So, so that's awesome. But what I did was I decided to take 12 months off and I wanted to buy an RV. I'd seen people living in Alaska at the bottom of these mountains in an RV. And so I had my goal, I had my vision. And so I just needed to make it happen and so after I sold the store I also sold my house <laughs> and, and just went you know I need to I need to start again and uh and so I I flew to Seattle with my mountain bike in a box and skis and snowboard and rollerblades and you've seen nothing like me traveling I don't travel light and so that's why I had to buy a big RV to put it all in um and I did I had a had a budget and I rode my bike to all the RV dealers and I remember the day I I chose my one and I had to wait a few days for them to get it all ready for me but um I drove that RV to Alaska all by myself and for the next 12 was months. That, where, did you, where did you drive it from? From Seattle? Yeah, from Seattle all the way up through Canada. Up I through the Yukon the and then past the mile, what's it called? The 30 mile where that really famous heli-ski place is. What is it? 33 mile or something like that? Well, yeah, before you, it was, it was a super, super long trip in an RV by myself learning to drive on the other side of the road. I remember when I bought the thing, uh, the guy's like, you want to test drive? I'm like, oh, I've never driven on the other side of the road. And he took me to the Walmart parking lot so I could <laughs> drive around in circles. So it took me a while and, and I had a great time. And, and what that did was it gave me a lot of alone time. It gave me a lot of time driving and I had my favorite music I'd turn on every day. And it, it, it gave me the time to learn to enjoy my own company, figure out what I love to do, um, have games that I would play with myself, have, uh, <laughs> that sounds funny. Anyway, um, I would, I would figure out where I wanted to go the next day and what was the thing I wanted to see and what was the adventure I got to do. I got to choose my own path every day and choose my own life. And and the things on my list that I wanted to do was I wanted to see a polar bear so bad. And so I knew I needed to make that happen. I wanted to to go to places that had no names with nobody around. I wanted to um, go back to Valdez, Alaska 
to the heli ski operation and park my RV in the parking lot at the bottom of this mountain and and have that dream come true of 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 living there at the base of this mountain, even if it was just for a short time. I had visa issues and all sorts of things trying to achieve these 12 months in the RV. But at the my plan was at the end of the 12 months to sell the RV, to go back to Australia, start a new business and get back to life. But that didn't happen. I fell in love, not just with my RV, not just with Alaska, but with, with the man, Steve, one of the heli ski guides. And I decided that if and I just sold to give, that- Just to um, give context, to who, who is your <laughs> husband? And um, can you tell us about how he was one of the original guides with Doug Coombs as of probably 94, 95, and they were some of the first people pioneering lines in the uh, in the Chugash. Yeah, I got I got super lucky. I got a good one. Hey, he's super nice guy, Steve Shum from from Montana, and uh, we live in in ab just out of Bozeman, Montana, at the base of a, a, a mountain here in the Bridges, a, a resort called Bridge Bowl. It's it's an awesome place to ski, and he's a skier and a sailor just like me, just like I'd grown up skiing and sailing with my mum and dad. And he he's also, also a snowboarder for everybody out there. <laughs> yeah, I should say that. He was actually originally a, a snowboarder when I met so, him. So, but... so, so what kind of um, what kind of lessons did you learn from running this, from um, kind of adjudicating the, uh, the, the ski and snowboard um, conflict and the rollerblade and skateboard conflict that you ended up dating and marrying a, a snowboarder? <laughs> I still remember the time I wanted my brother to drive me up to Threadbow and he says, you're not putting that snowboard in my car. <laughs> I'm like, come on. He seriously didn't want to put a snowboard in his car. Um, I was a snowboarder for about, I don't know, 10, 12 years because we sold snowboards at Adrenaline Sport. And so I had to test them and I got to travel to some Burton conferences and we were ended up being a Burton dealer. And that was the biggest, um, you know, confrontational thing I had to figure out was but there was no way Burton was going to let a rollerblade store sell <laughs> snowboards and it took about four or five years of me proving myself to be this amazing adrenaline sports store that could handle you know dealing with um with snowboarders and skiers with with skateboarders and rollerbladers and um I got very good at dealing with warranties and hard customers and and it's really just trying to figure out how to have a win-win for everybody so that you know we, we were all in the love of the sport and so um yeah being a retailer helped me with that and um I fell in love with a snowboarder and I was a snowboarder when I met him too but I discovered very quickly back then um that if you wanted to hike up the mountain if the helicopter couldn't fly or you couldn't afford it <laughs> which happens a lot <laughs> um you need to be able to hike up the mountain and so I was there in the early days of backcountry skiing where we were learning to use skins. Um, split boards weren't really an option back then. They would break very easily. They were in their very early infancy. Um, so snowboarders had to wear snowshoes and put their board on their back, which, you know, to hike up one of these mountains, that's a huge mission on snowshoes. Yeah, give me a sled or a give me a sled or a helicopter any day over. <laughs> exactly. I'm not, I'm not a hiker. A I'm, I'm a redneck. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what that's my, the next stage. 
My, my favorite's the kite, but uh, but 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 really, um, I had to learn to to do backcountry and also getting to hang around my husband. You know, when we when we first met, I got to hang around all the heli ski guides and I got to go to their meetings and I got to listen to them and I got to go to all of their briefings when they were training. Every day they would train new people coming to heli ski how to use their beacons, and so I'd be doing it too. And um, um, eventually, you know, I did some certifications as well, and I got the skills to become a backcountry guide. And I was uh, a backcountry guide in Threadbow for for a few years when they first brought in their backcountry program. Um, you know, I had a little bit of input on that, and um, so so I really absorbed all of their their knowledge. And um, yeah, Alaska became part of my life every year, every single year. I never sold that RV. I had it for twelve years, and it eventually fell apart. <laughs> so I never sold it. So, so you ended up living in uh, in Valdez over that time. Um, you were obviously you were dating and then ended up marrying a very accomplished uh, heli ski guide who has been through the ringer, I'm sure, over the years, learning about avalanches and slough management and different, um, very important facets of traveling through the mountains. Even though yeah. the Chugash is a maritime snowpack and is a lot safer than a shale snowpack, say in the, the Colorado Rockies. Can you tell us about how you went about learning your backcountry awareness and traveling safe in the mountains? Because you've obviously you're from Australia. We don't really have massive mountains. And obviously we do have backcountry here, but um it's not that common that people use it nowadays that it is a little bit more. Um, back in your day, um, or not saying that you're that old, but you know, back in the day, it wasn't as popular. How did you yep. learn your backcountry safety protocols, and what were some of the lessons that you could give to our listeners on if they are trying to get into the backcountry and trying to um, just kind of learn about the mountains and how to travel safely in them? Yeah, sure, sure. Will yeah, I remember when I started, you know, kind of getting over the resort. And, and venturing out into the backcountry to learn my skills. I was going up into, going to Alaska, and that's definitely where I learned very quickly what can go wrong. Um, in my, in my uh, first year, I watched somebody fall into a crevasse and then pull him out and he was injured. In my second year, I actually got caught in an avalanche and the being ignorant is bliss. When you don't know the dangers, you can go out there and have a great time. And that's the problem with backcountry skiing is it's very easy, especially in Australia, to think that there's no day, big dangers out there like avalanches. But there is. We're all talking about snowpack and whether it's snowpack in Australia, snowpack in Alaska, snowpack in different maritime or, or mountain snowpacks. There's so many different snowpacks. Um, it's, it's all about being curious and, and having good risk assessment um, so that you can evaluate whether it's safe to go out. What are the dangers? Are there any dangers out there? In Australia, there's actually more dangers than you realise. You've got snow bridges over the rivers that you can fall through. There's um, there's some really good cornices because there's great wind out there. And so, again, those become dangerous in the springtime. It's like going hiking. When you're in remote areas away from resorts and you don't have ski patrol to call, or look after you, you need to have the skills that a ski patroller does 
in order to to be safe, um, such as having some basic medical, knowing how to use a first aid kit and being able to do some basic first aid out there if something goes wrong um, and being able to know what to put in your backpack so that you are rescue ready for any of the scenarios that could possibly happen. And so to get that knowledge... Um, go and do a first aid course. Get your first aid, get your CPR. Um, this month, well, I am actually going to Yellowstone National Park and I'm doing my wilderness um, first responder, which is like 80 hours. I've got a manual this thick. I'm redoing even more medical stuff all the time, constantly, because you want to keep that in front of your mind if anything goes wrong so that we can be safe. You need to uh, go and do an avalanche course. Those things are brilliant because they teach you about what a red flag is. And red flag is is a danger that you can see. So that's risk assessment, being observant and knowing what a danger looks like, knowing what a cornice looks like, knowing the terrain that there's rivers underneath, knowing that there might be a weak layer in the snowpack. Um, and so that an avalanche course would be the next one. Or going out with a guide, go on a backcountry tour. It might sound lame to have this guide that you're following, but you might get lucky and have a guide like me that actually teaches you a few things and will help you put your skins on, will help you get in and out of your bindings because that can be the hardest part for people is transitioning from alpine gear to touring gear where the bindings release and and this and the, the heels lift up and putting those sticky freaking skins on and how do you deal with them not sticking and and flapping in the wind and and those some some of those basic things is what's going to make backcountry more pleasurable for you um so go on a guided tour do an avalanche course get some first aid and then you just need some practice and so you want to get out there as much as you can. And that's why I used to go out in Australia by myself a lot. There was nobody doing backcountry. I couldn't find anybody who had backcountry gear to come with me. And so I started going out not too far away from the resort. I, I used to go out to Signature a lot because people could see me. If anything happened, I was close enough they could see me um, if something went wrong. And I'd always tell somebody where I went. And I'd also make sure I had good communication in my backpack, a way of communicating, not just a phone because batteries die and you might not be in reception, but a way that you had GPS access. So I've got an EPIRB these days. A lot of people have, you know, trackers or um, there's a bunch of different ones on the marketplace, just some way that you can communicate no matter what, especially in a, a life and death emergency. I've got something in my backpack that I can press a button and the helicopter is going to come rescue me if the weather's not bad. If the weather's bad, you might be there for hours um, waiting for them to come on snow machines or even hiking into you. Um, and so you need to make sure you've got enough warm stuff in your backpack to keep yourself warm. Even if I'm just going out for the day on for a couple of hours, I've still got a puffy down jacket in my pack. I've got a thermarest to lie on to get myself or somebody injured off the ground. I've got hand warmers, you know, you've got to have your backcountry pack set up. And those are things I learned from the heli guides because I would see Steve pulling his pack in and out, what he had in there. Uh, they used to play tricks on each other, put a brick in the bottom of their pack, you know, below their ropes <laughs> as if their packs don't weigh enough. But, um, yeah, all those little things, Will, are so important that people sort of overlook. Um, so you you've been through um the ringer you we we know a lot of people that have died 
over the years in the mountains. Um, can you tell us about some of the life lessons that you've learned, um, you know, being around somebody that's overcome adversity and the fact that your brother's won multiple disabled Olympic medals um, and, you know, he's kind of seen the possibilities where other people see, you know, like where he you see opportunities where other people see problems. And then mm-hmm. can you see how, can you tell me how this has affected you over the years and what you've, has it changed you as a person and has it made you more precautious in the mountains? Wow, that's a long question, Will. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't remember the first bit. Can you remind me of that? Sorry. Oh, basically, just what, what, what over the years of the people that you've been around that have like kind of made you see the the positive side of life. And then yeah. now as you've get, gotten a bit older, you've started to hang out in the Chugash. You've started to see some of the biggest figures in skiing and snowboarding slowly start getting, you know, clipped off, starting to pass away, dying in avalanches, dying in crevasses. Um, there's yeah. a long, All long right. list of these people. Um, what kind of lessons has this taught you about seizing the day and obviously then safety precautions in the mountains? Yeah, great. Thanks for the recap of that, Will. Um, yeah, I don't like to think about, maybe that's why I forgot the question, because I don't like thinking about, you know, the people that have passed and the mistakes that were made. And I what that's taught me, and it, it taught me in my first avalanche course, is that there's no black and white out there. It is a variety of different scenarios that could happen. And so it's important to think about all those different scenarios um, so that you've got a solution to each of the problems. Uh, One of the biggest things that I've learned is the human factor. And the human factor, um, that's what catches a lot of people off guard. And and if you read all of the avalanche journals, um, there's, there's, report after report of people being so excited, just like me, right? I need to be careful with this one is when you get so excited that you want to go, maybe you don't see those red flags that I just talked about because, oh, it's not that bad. I can deal with that. Um, You know, you might've planned this mission for a long time. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. You might've planned this mission for a long time and and you've had time off work or you've flown across the world to make this mission happen and you really want to make it happen. And sometimes you can ignore the little devil on the, you know, angel on the shoulder that's saying, hey, Jen, it's the, the weather's not right. Hey, no, no, the avalanche danger's too high. Uh, maybe today's not your day. Sorry, you, you may not achieve this. The mountain's not going to let you today. So, so ba- basically what you're trying to say is that you've learned to say the the less the, the greatest lesson is is the ability to say no and when you're not feeling it yeah. you turn around and you go back to base is that the right way to yeah. yeah it is and also not being pushed by your clients as a guide you know your clients want to make that mission happen and sometimes it's a really hard job as a guide to say no to those clients who are trying to make their dream come true because you know the dangers and they're not seeing them that's a really tough tough role and so if you're out with a guide and the guide says nope 
appreciate that that's a really hard decision to make. They want to do it just as badly as you, um, but you've got to you've got to make that decision. And I know people that have passed away because clients have pushed them to do one more run, and and they're just wanting to make your dream come true. Um, so yeah, gaining knowledge is so important. The more knowledge you gain, the more confidence you gain. The more practice you do, the more confidence you gain. Um, but being overconfident. Or, or not having enough knowledge is definitely an extra danger scale for sure. So I'm just constantly wanting to to learn and having an open mind, a curious, curious like a polar bear, right? Be curious like a polar bear to want to learn, to want to seek out uh, the layers in the snow like a scientist, you know, figure some stuff out to make your decisions. Um, so you've been around some of the highest level um mountain guides and heli ski guides on planet earth over the last 15 years 20 years um can you tell me how have things evolved in the chugash over the last 15 years from the kind of kamikaze you know um you know a hundred dollar heli drops on the top of um pontoon to today's day and age (laughs) <laughs> well, hey, first of all, am I the luckiest girl in the world or or what? I'm so grateful to get to be in proximity with all these amazing guides and athlete and especially with my mindset of just wanting to absorb um my yeah my knowledge is 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 like a cocktail of of all of their knowledge that I've I've gotten to be in and I was there will the heli runs were 80 bucks and they drop you on the top of any of these mountains and and you know what the it was incredible. And what's changed is that the guides who might be called cowboys in the beginning, because in the beginning, people really didn't have, you know, all of this guiding knowledge networks, institutes and things that you can go and learn all this stuff. These guys had to learn on the mountain, the mountain taught them. And, uh, and they made some smart decisions because they're still here today. Um, uh, I'm talking, you know, Steve and Jerry, the guides that I get to to hang out with. And those guys are old school, you know, maybe <clears throat> the new school guys, those guys have a lot of qualifications because there's so much stuff they can learn and do and certifications that they can get now. And that's amazing because they have so much incredible knowledge, but then also what's their experience. And I think it's really important to, to think about if, if you're choosing a guide, would you want someone with a shitload of knowledge or do you want someone with a heap of experience, especially in the Chugach? Um, I, I know you definitely want a combination of both. And so it's important to, to figure that out between the new school guys and the old school guys who um, really just have this relationship with the mountain like I've never seen before. And that's something that I still try to achieve every day is, you know, really appreciating the mountain and mother nature and how powerful it is and, and just being grateful when the mountain says, okay, I've got the right conditions for you. You can you can go and play on me today. Uh, just give me one thing. I just need to, I just drank a liter of water. I'm just going to go to the bathroom. I'll be back in one sec. So then we're going to transition cool. into, the kite, into the kite world. Okay, cool.
Mind me to not drink two liters of water, Jenny. Sorry. So over the years, you've um, you've you've done a multitude of different sports, um, and now what you're most uh, well known for in your latter, this latter part of your uh, snow sports career, and obviously your your surfing career, is that you've become a kite affiliate. So can you tell us about kite skiing? and kiteboarding and how you originally got into it and how it's become such an, you know, such a big part of your life. Yeah. If you thought I was excited before, we'll wait till I start talking about snow kiting because I am so passionate about it. I help skis and snowboarders learn how to fly kites on snow so that they can uh, have backcountry freedom. We don't have to hike up the mountain anymore. We can kite. And how I got into that was when I had adrenaline sports. I had one of my reps come and show me some um, snowboard boots. And they were also the distributor for Nash. And he showed me a picture of a kite. And I had the opportunity to to order one of these kites for adrenaline sports. And I was going to pump it up and have it in the store because we always wanted to have the latest and greatest things that people hadn't seen before and so I uh, got one of these kites in and uh, when I sold the store I I took it with me (laughs) I took it to I took it all the way to Alaska with me and my plan was you know to 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 travel for 12 months in that RV and then my visa was going to run out and I had to go back home to Australia to kind of renew things Uh, you know how that works and uh, I decided that I would fly through Maui and I would have kiteboarding lessons. That was the best place in the world to have them. In fact, it was one of nearly the only places you could learn to kiteboard back then. We're talking the, you know, early 2000s. And uh, and so when I was actually up in Alaska and I was kind of, you know, had the hots for the cute heli-ski guide, Steve, um, we were talking about skiing and we're talking, sorry, uh, we're talking about sailing and he grew up windsurfing. And I'm like, I grew up windsurfing too. And I'm like, look, I got this kite and I'm going to Maui and I'm going to kiteboard. And uh, I probably came across maybe, you know, maybe a little more confident. He thought I knew how to fly this kite. Uh, I I didn't say, oh, I don't know how to fly it and I'm going to have lessons in Maui. And so one day when the helicopter couldn't fly, Steve had the day off and we decided we'd take our kites out there on the snow. And he had this little trainer kite, which was the right kite to have because those things are safe and they're small and they're easy to fly. And he launched it and he's cruising backwards and forwards on his snowboard. I'm like, oh, my God, that's so cool. And so I launched this big, scary kite that was just dangerous with no D-power and I didn't know how to fly it. I launched it and... And holy shit, I'm out of control. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And I'm like, I watch Steve, he's having a good time. I'm like, just holy shit, I'm out of control. And and all of a sudden, you know, the kites crashed on the ground. I'm just like standing there going, what do I do now? <laughs> what do I do now? And meanwhile, Steve's like, He's he's ended up going downwind, which ended up being back at the heli base. And he's he's seeing me up there just like sitting there breathing. He's like, okay, she's having a rest. Maybe she's having a good time. And he went inside to have a beer and <laughs> celebrate after his session. I go, okay. 
I need to figure out how to how to stop this kite because it's downwind of me and the wind's just blowing it away from me. If I walked towards it, it kept blowing away from me. And I'm like, shit, I don't know how to stop. I need to run it into something. And I had two choices. I had a tree or I had a helicopter. <laughs> I decided that it was going to be much cheaper to run my, my kite into the tree, which I did. And I put it away and uh, I decided I better go and have my lessons next, um, which I did. And that was amazing. And I learned that that was not the right sort of kite to have. And uh, luckily, I did get put on the path um, by the instructor of being safe with my kites and making those decisions. And um, so year after year, I slowly got better. I slowly was able to find more kite instructors. And I found some women's clinics to do because it was so scary. And it was great being with a bunch of women. We were all scared together and then and, and conquering that fear together, which was super cool way to learn. Um, and I, I started learning on what on both water and snow. And so, um, they, my skills started, you know, helping each other in both the winter and the summer. And, um, eventually I got better and better and better, which was super cool. <laughs> um, as, as a, you know, adrenaline junkie female, can you tell us about what it's like to be in a group of women, um, where you get to learn together as opposed to being with a group of men where you're trying to keep up with the guys, like what kind of impact did that have on you and what kind of recommendations would you give to young females that want to go out into the world and try some of these adventure sports that you do? Oh, women thanks for asking that question it's something I'm so passionate about because it was those women's clinics that really gave me the confidence to keep going with the sport of of, of kiteboarding um, because a lot of women have a lesson and then they don't know where to go from there and they don't have the confidence to keep going on their own and so having a, a women's camp was amazing because the instructors were able to teach us slightly differently to in a normal lesson which is very technical and very step by step as women we were you know we had a bit more mindset training we you know hold, held each other's hands and you know um had they had different ways of saying um something which was a skill I learned as a ski instructor you know not everybody learns the same way if you can say it a couple of different ways then they'll eventually they'll get it um and so women's clinics I started my first one as a beginner my the second year I came back and I did another one and I was an intermediate. I was improving quite quickly because I flew my kites all winter on snow as well. Um, the third year I came back and I was in the advanced group learning how to jump, which was so fun. And after that, I was like, you know what? It's my time to give back. I should become an instructor too and start helping other women, um, which is exactly what I did. I, I had the same attitude about becoming a backcountry guide. I wanted to learn as much as I could. So I became a certified IKO instructor. I became a certified uh, Kiteboarding Australia instructor and... Um, I started absorbing all of those amazing professional kiters and, and coaches, I, absorbing all their information and figuring out how I could put it together to use on snow because there wasn't, I wasn't able to find any snow kiting instructors back then. So I just had to sort of figure out how, how it translated from water to snow, just like I did with my brother, just like I did with, with other things in the past, just how, just adapt, adapt is the word. And uh, 
So, so you went out and you saw a hole in the industry and then you went out and um, created your own kind of school to teach people. What were some of the trials and tribulations that you went through when you were first learning how to do this new sport? And what are some of the lessons that you could potentially teach to both male and females out there who are listening to this podcast? Yeah, well, I got the best opportunity of my life because I started uh, teaching heli skiers and boarders when the helicopter couldn't fly they needed something else to do just like i told you steve and i went out kiting together on a storm day um all of a sudden everybody wanted to do it too and so i started teaching people and all of a sudden i was teaching hundreds of people you know every season how to kite and so i became better and better at teaching and be found, you know, a formula of teaching people to do it that was super fast. You know, if if, if somebody's coming um, with me to snow kite and they're, they're just doing it for an experience to test the sport, I want them to be getting their first rides on the first day. And I get such a buzz out of seeing them do it. It's like, yeah, because kiteboarding, anyone who's tried to learn how to kiteboard or is in the process and the progression of kiteboarding, it's a long process and it takes a commitment of of time and 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 purchasing gear whereas to go snow kiting you've already got all your ski gear you've already got skis and snowboard all i need to do is give you a little trainer kite or depending on the wind speed a bigger kite and you can you can do it so i started loving teaching people and i'd go back home to australia and teach people out of threadbow then I'd go back to Montana and I'd start teaching people out of Montana and Idaho. And then I'd go back up to Alaska and start teaching people there. So all of a sudden, Will, I became this international snow kite school. Um, uh, women's kiteboarding call me the queen of snow kiting. And uh, Kite World magazine um, calls me one of the top female multi-sport kiters in the world, because uh, not just because of my snow kiting, but I actually became a pretty good kite surfer in the waves. And um, in when, 2018, I was actually Australian female women's uh, kite surfing champion in the waves. So I was very, very and proud was of that. that in, was that in the open category? That was in the women's category. And uh, I got that was out of all the Aussies. Um, I came first that year. And then a couple of weeks later, I got to compete in the GKA, which is kind of like the World Cup of kite surfing. The final was in Torquay, Australia. And so I got a wild card to be able to enter that event. And I actually ended up coming fourth place against the top kite surfers in the world. And they awarded me the rookie, rookie award. I was 48 years old over double the age of all the other girls I was competing against. So you're, um, you're just a, you know, a, a, a vessel of amazing energy. Um, how do you keep up with it? And what about injuries? Have you had any injuries that have sidelined you over the years and how have you um, gone about getting over those? And what would you have to say to people that have been injured that have stopped doing the sports that they loved as, as kids and now they're getting a little bit older? Yeah, yeah. Um, don't like the injury question, but I'll, I'll answer it because I think it's inspiring um, for me to share, you know, my mindset that I use um, to deal with that. My my first, um, and I'm not going to call it an injury because I didn't have a crash and get injured and have an injury. Um, I ended up having um, 
an issue with my back that, you know, was something that either I was born with or it just, you know, eventuated after a length of time. And I ended up having to have spinal surgery. Um, and that was a huge, I had 12 months off my sport. Um, they did a spinal fusion. Uh, they put in an artificial disc. It was massive spinal surgery. And, and to come back from, you know, hardly being able to walk, um, to, you know, five years later being the Australian kite surfing champion was uh, a goal that I set in the hospital. You've got to just keep believing, keep believing that you can get back to doing what you love and knowing that it's going to take some effort to get there and commitment and motivation and learning that that polar bear mi uh, mindset again, which, I, you know, I use all the time as uh, when you get injured or you're hurt and you can't do the sport that you love, it it can tear you apart and, and cause a lot of problems. But I consider myself like a polar bear. I just need to go and hibernate in my den for a little while do what I need to do um, medical wise. And then all of a sudden, you know, start coming out of my den and, and being ready to, to start, start training. And that takes motivation and commitment. And the, sometimes the only way to have that motivation and commitment to getting back to full fitness and strength is to have a really big freaking goal that doesn't allow you to be any other way. Being a Australian champion kite surfer, there was no other way than I had to get fit and strong. Um, Will, I did have my first injury this year. That's why they, this is a tough question because I got injured doing sport for the first time. Um, yes, I'm a skier and I've been skiing 50 years and, and it was my turn. I blew my ACL in Alaska this year and it was devastating to Done me. Done that three times. But what uh, kind of recommendations would you have to people that have stopped skiing or snowboarding or stopped surfing for like – you know, a period of time, but want to get back into it. Like what kind of lessons have you learned that could be applied to these people so they can go back to the sports that they loved as kids or as young adults? Get a PT, get a PT. In fact, I've got two right now. I've got one that is local here that I'm going to the gym and working with, and he's doing some incredible stuff to help me get my, my strength back up. And I have a second PT who, uh, his name is Greg. He's known on Instagram as the ski PT. And I chose him because he specializes in skiing. If I want to get back to top level skiing after an injury, I want to find the best people who are specific to my sport and I will search them out. Now, Greg doesn't live near me, but we do online sessions weekly and it's incredible what he can see by watching me on a Zoom call um, and give me the exercises needed to correct it. And he has picked up stuff on online calls that the other guy didn't pick up in the gym until the week later. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, get a PT. Also get a get a fitness and training program. There's some great apps out there. In fact, I have my own fitness app now, Will, because I worked with um, a personal trainer in Ulladulla and Milton last year, and we built a specific fitness program especially for kiters to deal with the muscles that we need for kiting, for hanging on to the bar. Um, people hang on too tightly and they get tennis elbow or golfer's elbow I just call it kiter's elbow um, and so after kiting now for 20 years 
I know which muscles get sore. I know which muscles you need to be strong. And by doing a program like that, and there's a million fitness apps out there. I'm not trying to sell you my program. It's awesome though. Um, it, just get a fitness app and start start getting into it because the fitter and stronger you are, the the more likely you are to avoid injury. And we can be crash proof. I know you want to be crash proof, Will, with the stuff you love doing on the mountain, right? Well, over the last few years, I've I've been stuck in Australia, so I've just been surfing a lot. I haven't been skiing much. I've probably skied 20 days in the last two years. Going from a, being a professional athlete to doing that has been quite a culture shock, but I had to yeah. um, take on the burden of trying to make some money so I could live the life that I was so accustomed to growing up, and that required a little bit of sacrifice, which meant being stuck in one place for a little while. But I'm yeah. about to come out of that and hopefully go back to um, – go back to skiing at a high level and I'll hopefully be in Alaska this, uh, this spring and ready to, ready to go. I'm hoping to go to, to Japan for a few months and then go to Europe for a month or two to get ready for Alaska. Um, I can ski better than I can walk. So I know that I still have the skills there, but it's just um, reapplying that. So I was just curious about what your opinions on that kind of stuff was. And because, you know, as I, as, as you get a little bit older um, responsibilities kick in, you know, I chase winter for, I'm, you know, 35 back-to-back winters. You've been doing it a lot longer than I have, but still I put a lot of my life into that. Did you say you chase women or you chase Chase, winter? Chase winter, chase winter. (laughs) Both. I definitely chase women, but no, hopefully they're more so chasing me. But, um, you know, (laughs) but, and so can you tell us, um, you're now embarking on a new project, um, where you're going to cross the Greenland ice shelf. Now, this sounds like quite a crazy expedition. Can you give us a little bit of details about that and what you guys are hoping to achieve? Yeah, well, so I have had a student in my snow kite school for about three or four years, and he started off as a beginner, and and he's gotten better and better over the years. He's come up to Alaska to my snow kite camps twice, and he had the goal of snow kiting across Greenland, and I got to help him train for that. And last year, he achieved his mission, and I got uh, satellite calls from him out on the ice, uh, out on the ice sheet, saying thank you so much for teaching me the skills I needed to know with my kite to achieve that. And so I followed him on his journey of having that dream. And uh, that was amazing. And then this year at my, at my women's camp, I run women's snow kite camps. So I transitioned from the, the ones I went to and now I have my own camps and I get to help women fall in love with the sport of snow kiting. I had these women come because they're training to do the Greenland crossing as well. And so they uh enlisted my help for training them to have all those skills that they need to do that mission too. And in the process of doing that, they actually invited me to be part of their team. So not only am I coaching them, I'm going to be there um, for the whole trip in order to help them and also having an amazing adventure myself. Um, They told me that it wasn't just about achieving an athletic goal of crossing the the Greenland um, ice sheet from south to north which is about a, that's about a, you know, 30, 40 day mission. Well, it's, it's a huge, how many days, how many, how many, how many, how much, um, how much ground are you usually covering on a, on a good day with the right kind of favorable winds in the direction that you're trying to travel in? 
Yeah, you can, it all depends on the wind. So my best friend, the wind is going to have a determining factor of how far we can go in a day. We're going to have different size kites with us so that we can handle different uh, strengths of wind. So we're going to probably kite most days. There might be a few days without wind that we'll have to decide, you know, do you hike and carry all your gear? Probably not because the amount of ground you'd cover hiking, um, you could cover in, you know, 15, 20 minutes <laughs> with a kite if it's windy the next day. And so those decisions will come down to our guide, Camilla. She's done this trip five times and she has um, her father who is um, doing all the amazing Arctic forecasting on the ice shelf. And that's a really important um, tool to have. And so Camilla... And her dad will be making some of those decisions of how far we need to go today because there's no wind tomorrow. Um, but we can go hundreds of kilometers, hundreds of kilometers in a day. Um, but the thing that's going to slow us down is that some of the girls don't have the same kite skills that I do. So we, we need, we're only as fast as our slowest person. Some of them don't have the same ski skills. Um, and we are also filming a documentary. Will, so you know how long it takes when you're setting up shots and dealing with cameras and especially in cold Arctic conditions when our hands are in mitts, everything's going to take so much time. And uh, we had a meeting the other day to discuss time stealing, it's called. And by everybody needing to stop and pee, say, four times during the day and, you know, 15 minutes each, you know, ultimately we can lose two to three hours just for peeing during the day. Whereas, you know, we, if we were fast with our methods, we could, we could spend that time traveling. So there's a lot of things that can slow us down. So it's hard to know exactly how long it will take us and how far we're going to travel every day. Is there so can you tell us what 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 kind of um what kind of uh what are you trying to achieve with this mission and um and what are some of the the hurdles of learning how to travel in winter um environments are you having to learn you know sub temperate you know sub sub zero temperatures um you know animals uh potentially polar bears i'm not 100 percent sure um can you tell us about some of the things that you're learning about that, that the public might not be aware of when you're doing such a, an amazing and very dangerous expedition yeah yeah let's talk polar bears first my favorite subject uh uh we are planning to do some polar bear defense training in Canada, we can go up there and learn uh, a lot more about how a polar bear behaves, um, learn how to, we've already um, had a session of learning how to to shoot a gun, um, which, you know, a, a lot of the other girls have experience in that, but me as an Aussie, I don't. Um, and of course, I don't want to shoot the bear. So it'd be nice to, to know some ways of distracting it, of course, that will do. Uh, then there's, you know, my what success looks like to me is everybody finishing safely with no frostbite, no injuries, uh, and um, no matter how long it takes us, everybody 
achieving that one mission. Uh, Camilla's her goal is is again, you know, making sure that that we take the the fastest or the correct route, um, and we we stay on track. It's easy to get pulled off track. The wind can pull us definitely off track, and and we can be a long way apart, and people can get lost. So, her her um, success is the same as mine. Everybody finishes and in one piece. Um, whereas some of the other girls. Their mission is actually different. Their mission is to film a documentary and to have an impact on this world about spreading the uh, solutions for the changing climate. Um, they're very passionate about about climate change. They work in climate change and um, they have a lot to say. Um, and we would like to prove on this mission some of the solutions that are available. I've set myself already the personal mission that my best friend, the wind, is going to take me and power all of my stuff across the Greenland ice sheet. Um, I could be one of the first people to actually do it 100% wind. Most people use solar panels in order to uh, achieve the power that they want, but I'm already looking into kinetic energy, um, you know, kinetic energy produced from the back of my ski. I'm looking at little portable wind generators that I can have that I can even put on my sled at the back so that as I move, I'm creating apparent wind, um, that thing will be charging. So we're going to actually run a bit of a contest to see who can charge the most power. Um, so we'll be doing some scientific experiments. We'll, uh, we'll be proving what is possible that a bunch of girls who have never lived on the ice together um, can achieve in, in terms of survival and and creating generating their own power um so it's a really exciting project and so the goal is to create a, a documentary that is going to go worldwide on national geographic disney channels we've already got gopro on board thank you gopro and uh there's a lot of logistics going into bat of how we're going to film it how we're going to get film crews in there um how we're going to keep all of the batteries charged, how I'm going to be able to fly a drone out there. Um, so there's all of that learning too, Will, not just the the Arctic survival, but the filming knowledge. I'm actually uh, doing some public speaking classes right now. You probably wouldn't know because there's a lot of ums and ahs still, but I'm working on my speaking because this might be my opportunity to be able to speak um, to to the world stage and I want to make sure I've got something you know a message that is going to create an impact and inspire others um, so it's a big responsibility for me on so many different planes it's making me want to be a better person and again keep learning my knowledge I'm studying I'm doing my wilderness first responder um, this week and really focusing on all of the arctic cold weather frostbite hypothermia all of that knowledge that I can gain and you know I've done courses before but this time with a new focus I'll be asking those instructors specific questions for my mission fantastic and and uh what on a parting note what, what kind of um what kind of life lessons would you like to um, provocate and teach to young women and young males that want to do similar things to what you're doing? And what kind of um, examples would you give to them to not live the mundane life that they're usually thrust upon us by society? I would, I would say 
set, set yourself a challenge. You've always got to have a goal or a challenge or something that you're striving towards because that's what gives us the motivation to, to want to be better, to learn the skills we need to, to achieve that, having something to look forward to. Uh, I told you in the beginning of the podcast that those boys challenged me. Yeah, right. You'll go to Alaska and do that, Jen. Um, so I respond to somebody else challenging me. What do you respond to? Ask yourself that question. What do you respond to that makes you, you know, want to fight, right? Are you, you know, when we're scared, we either want to fight for it or flight. Well, in my case, I get to do both. I get to fight and I have flight, which is my kite. I get to fly my kite all the time. Um, and so making sure that you don't, when you get scared, that it doesn't scare you off right? Being scared is actually an amazing feeling. It's very similar to excitement. And, and maybe one day you'll think you're, you're fearful and all of a sudden you'll, you'll, it'll turn into excitement. Um, and once you've, you have overcome that fear once or twice, and then three times, it, again, it's something that if you practice facing a fear, and at first with me and with many women, even men, there's going to be tears because it's so emotional to be that scared and not want to, and, and not run away and just, just do it anyway. And so there's going to be tears, but you know what, after you do it, man, there's going to be cheers and that feeling that you get from achieving something that you were so scared to do, and then you do it anyway. That is an incredible feeling that that outweighs all of the other feelings that I had, and that's what will keep pushing you through to to achieve what you want to do. Um. So, last question: What's on the on the future for for Miss Adrenaline Jen, and where can we find you on socials and follow your journey as you cruise the uh, the windy, windy, windy ice shores of the Greenland ice shelf? Yeah, you know, my friends call me Jen Windy Milton and some of my friends send me pictures of windy days. I'm thinking of you, Jen, <laughs> every time it's windy. So, you know, Will, I'm doing a bunch of things. As an athlete, I'm training my ass off to get fit and strong so that I can be back skiing this mountain in Alaska this year. I am running my online snow kite academy so that people can learn to snow kite from over all over the world and I can keep keep teaching my passion to people online, um, whether it's windy outside, whether I'm hurt, no matter what, I can keep sharing my passion. I'm striving towards the goal of crossing the Greenland ice cap with these girls and being part of a team. I've got an amazing husband who's off kite surfing right now who'll be home soon and, and we are training for winter. There's snow already on the mountains out the window there. So I'll be back skiing in no time. And, uh, and I'm enjoying learning how to, to do all these, the podcasts and, uh, and, and become a better speaker so that I can be part of this documentary. I've got a lot on the program, Will. You'll find me on Instagram at Adrenogen. You'll find me on Facebook, Adrenogen. And you'll also uh, find me, I've got a website called Adrenogen.com. So it's like Adrenaline Gen, Adrenogen. Hope to see you in there. Send me a message. Yeah, tell me if you're interested in snow kiting. Fantastic, Jenny. You're uh, a beacon of light in a dull, dull world. Congratulations on all your achievements. And um, 
coming through the adversity and and basically just going and having a good old schoolboy try and you know chasing your dreams um we appreciate it and thank you very much and hopefully i'll get to see you sometime this uh northern winter looking forward to seeing you in alaska will can't wait to ski this mountain with you we'll have a good time thanks, thanks darling. for having see you later oh well, i'm just going to stop recording